Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato, here with my uh, co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. Super excited for our episode today. Uh, Special Agent Frank Panessa. He was a member of the Drug Enforcement Administration, legendary DEA agent. We've had him on before. I'd, I'd call him the godfather. Of the DEA. I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. overshooting it. This guy literally wrote the book on how federal law enforcement does undercover work. Yeah, um, especially undercover work uh, targeting uh, organized crime. Mafia organized crime. So, Frank, we're really happy to have you with us. Uh, welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you guys again. It's a living legend here. Frank Panessa, for uh, some of our no. new, some of our newer listeners, we had uh, Frank on a, a a pod that we did early on in our uh, pod life, and there was uh, it was during the pandemic, and uh, there was you know the tech wasn't great, <laughs> so the uh, the final product, although substantively was amazing, that's one of the best interviews we ever did. Um, some of the tech issues made it less than perfect in terms of when you were consuming it. So that's why we wanted to bring uh, Frank back. And uh, I don't want to say redo the interview, but do a kind of a new, fresh interview. A reboot. And and introduce him to the audience again and let everyone know that uh, as we get bigger and as we grow and as we uh, expand, I I hope that Frank Panessa, I call him uh, Zio Ciccio. He's like my my great uncle uh, or my grandpa. <laughs> I, I love Frank Panessa like he's a family member. And uh, I hope he's a part of uh, the OG podcast as we grow. And, and we'll bring him on, you know, for, for guest spots and, and as, a, as, as an, uh, you know, uh, analysis, an, an analyst, if you will. I have no problem with that. I love talking with you guys. Yeah, we appreciate that, Frank. So I think a lot of our audience are going to be interested in, in the undercover work you did, um, especially infiltrating uh, Sicilian mafia organizations, and but 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 this sort of nexus between Italian American mafia families and and Sicilian mafia families. So, um, j- just take us back to the beginning. Like, when when did you first get this assignment that that they wanted you to infiltrate these these drug networks that uh, Italian and Sicilian mafia organizations were involved in? And this would be the 1970s, right? When your investigative work started, he started with the DEA when the DEA started. That's why he's the godfather. Yeah, I, I, matter of fact, uh, it was called BNDD back in the late 60s. And in 73, it became uh, DEA. Okay. So I was, I was, I started in, in 67 uh, when it was called uh, FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And then 68, it went to BNDD. And then they changed it to DEA in, uh, in 73. But all during that time, I was doing undercover work, and and I concentrated on the five families in New York, and I bought heroin from a lot of uh, different people in the different families. But then we got information that the Sicilians controlled the heroin importation uh, through Lilo uh, Galante. And uh, he had complete control in the in the late 70s of all the heroin that came into the United States. So they, we, one person that we, we saw that seemed to be a key figure was a guy by the name of Dominic Menino in Philadelphia. And he owned 26, Dominic Menino. Yeah, they called him Mimo. 
His nickname was Mimo. Mimo. Right. Yeah, well, his pizza shops were called Mimos. Right. And he had 26 of them. And he had all these Sicilians that were like slaves that worked for him. But they were also used, we called them zips. They were used to do hits, to distribute heroin and all that. So they sent me down to Philadelphia to inf- try to infiltrate into Dominic Menino, okay? Well, he was an untouchable, but I, I was lucky enough to arrest two wise guys in Philadelphia connected with Bruno, the Bruno family. And so when we were debriefing them, we, we said to them, hey, you're going to go to jail a long time unless you cooperate. So they said, well, we're not going to give anybody in the Bruno family. So I said to them, well, how about the Sicilian? <laughs> he said to me, well, they're not Italian. Yeah, we don't have any problem with that. And so we had to come up with a story as to who I was, and they were going to vouch for me. So they went to the, one of the Sicilians in one of the pizza shops and said, hey, you know, you guys got cigarettes and all all the machines. Remember when you walk into a restaurant, you have the, the machines in the in, in the vestibule. You know, I'm, old, you I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, I do too, I'm afraid. <laughs> Unfortunately, I remember very well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So he had uh, this this person, Alberto Ficolora, had 80 machines. So they went to him and they said, you know, our head hijacker just hijacked a shipment of cigarettes are you interested so of course he jumped on it at that time he was paying seven dollars and ten cents a carton you know going to a distributor for the cigarettes so they said to him that this guy will give you a good price on cigarettes do you want to meet him and he says yeah so what they did is they set up a meeting with the sicilians and with me, but they set it up in a wise guy restaurant. Wait, Frank, and, let me, can I interject for yeah. one second? I just want to make sure we haven't lost our listeners here. And I know sometimes I don't give our listeners enough credit, but I always yeah. want to be aware of new listeners and people that are uh, consuming us that might not know all the names and all the families. I know most do, but I just want to give people a scorecard here. So Frank is sent yeah, okay. after the heroin trade in America being run by the Italians. Uh, it's being run by a guy by the name of Carmine Galante, whose uh, Italian nickname was Lillo, but Lillo translates to the cigar or cigar. They called him the cigar because um, he always had a cigar in his mouth. And as yeah. Frank said, he was the not just the godfather of the Bonanno crime family and the self-proclaimed boss of bosses in New York City in the 1970s. He was also the godfather of the entire heroin industry that was, uh, you know, swallowing up uh, New York City as well as many other uh, metropolises around the country. And clearly uh, he wasn't doing the drug dealing himself. He had, uh, you know, uh, there was a hierarchy and a pyramid, and and guys that uh, worked for him were, were doing that drug dealing. Frank mentioned uh, the Zips and uh, Carmine Galante when he came out of prison uh, in the early 70s and, and went on this quest to, to take over the New York Mafia and take over the heroin industry in America, uh, imported 
a lot of Sicilian mobsters to be his own private army, kind of a family within a family, and they were referred to as Zips because they spoke so fast. The Americans began uh, calling them Zips. And so Frank is sent into Philadelphia to go after this Dominic uh, Menino. And Dominic Menino worked directly for a guy by the name of uh, uh, Cesare Bonaventri, who was the number one zip. Out of all the zips, uh, Cesare was number one, and he was Carmine Galante's right-hand personal lieutenant when it came to the drug racket. So Frank is trying to get to Cesare Bonaventure by going through Dominic Menino and the people that Menino worked for in Philadelphia. Uh, All of these drugs were being imported from uh, Europe into pizza parlors via tomato sauce cans, which is why the Frank Signature case in one of the, if not the, no, it is the biggest drug bust in American history, the most iconic drug case in American history was the pizza connection, and that's what we're talking about right here. So I'm sorry, Frank, I didn't mean to interrupt, but go back. Uh, So Frank gets these two uh, members of the Bruno crime, the Bruno crime family who are the Philadelphia mob. So you have the five families in New York, and then you have a, a, a mafia in New Jersey that's separate and a mafia uh, in Philadelphia that's separate, but they often all work together. And Frank has two, two soldiers in the Bruno family that are setting him up a meeting with one of these Zips, one of these guys that works for Bonaventure named uh, Alberto uh, uh, Figueroa. Yeah. You met at a wise guy hangout, and just so everyone knows, if you're, uh, if you're from Philadelphia, you will know the name. They met at Virgilio's, um, which was a uh, was owned by members of the Bruno crime family. It was a uh, a big hangout for Angelo Bruno and all of his lieutenants. So it's 1982. Uh, is that right when this was? It was earlier yeah. than that, wasn't well, it? Well, no. He he. Frank came into Philadelphia in 82. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Bruno was killed in 1980. Yeah, I gotcha. I got yeah. you. So it was called yeah. the Bruno crime family, even though. Uh, Angelo Bruno was Yeah, dead. it was. Uh, it, the people were trying to take it over, like Nicky Scarfo was trying to take it over. Who was the boss at the time? Well, I'll tell you, I, at the time, uh, in, in the two years be, between 82 and 84, there were 22 mob hits in Philadelphia. Of course, everybody was going to try, try to take over the Bruno family. You know, you had South Esther and all them. Um, and. Uh, and, and what had happened, the guy that came up on top, of course, was uh, crazy Nicky Scarfo. Yeah, who was a, he was a lunatic. He was a sociopath. I mean, there are mobsters yeah. that, you know, kill because it's part of the business. And then there are mobsters that kill for fun. And, and that's what Nicky Scarfo was. Yeah, he was, he was a psychopath. So, Frank, take us into Virgilio's. You're going there as an undercover. Uh, you have the entire, uh, your whole unit that is making you out to be a boss. And you're trying to convince the Sicilians, the Zips from New York who operate in Pennsylvania, you're trying to convince them that you're a member of the Bruno crime family. Not only are you a member, you're a shot caller. So all these guys that uh, are setting this up for you, when you guys show up at the meeting, you have one of them acting as your bodyguard, one of them acting as your driver, one of them is like serving you your food. So kind of tell us, talk about that. Yeah, well, what had happened when we walked into the restaurant, the two wise guys sat on either side of me, and then I had brought a bodyguard with me who was 
uh, an agent, Bill Keene, and he acted as my bodyguard. And the two Sicilians, Alberto Ficalora and Paolo Laporta, sat on the other side of the table. So when the drinks came out, they made sure they, they served me first. And the way they introduced me to the Sicilians was, he's a friend of ours. If, if they would have said he's a friend of mine, that meant I wasn't me. But when, he, when they said to the Sicilians, he's a friend of ours, that means I'm a made guy in a Bruno family. Okay? And so that started off the conversation. And we, and we had general conversation. When the food came out, these wise guys made sure I got the food first. And they were, you know... They couldn't do enough to make sure I had drinks and things like that. So the Sicilians, being men of honor, they're looking at this. They're saying, hey, he must be somebody. So anyway, Alberto Ficolora says to me, I hear you have a shipment of cigarettes. I says, yeah. He says, I'd be interested in buying them. Now, we know he was paying $7.10 a car for the cigarettes legitimately. So we, as the government, went out and bought cigarettes for $7.10 a carton, and I sold them to him for $4 a carton. And we wrote off the difference as an investigative expense. So, of course, he jumped on it. You know, he couldn't believe, you know, he's, he's saving $3 a carton. He's got 80 cigarette machines. So that's how it started. And, of course, I wasn't going to, you know, uh, you just can't jump in to say, hey, I do... I do white powder too, you know. So we waited a few months, you know, three, four months. They sold them cigarettes. So undercover work is a slow play sometimes. I mean, I don't think everyone understands the trade craft of it. Like you would think, like you just said, you would think that if you're an undercover drug agent, that the first thing you start talking to someone that you're trying to get your hooks into is drugs. But that's not proper trade craft. You're saying you spent three, four months just talking about cigarettes. And you, you don't even bring up that you know that these guys deal drugs. No, no. Uh, and, and what had happened was uh, I, I waited to an opportune moment, and then I put on my, you know, my sad sack face. And one day uh, Alberto says to me, uh, you know, what, what's wrong? I says, well, I, I, you know, I do other stuff. He says, what do you mean? I says, well, I do white powder. He says, why didn't you tell me? He says, we control it all. He says, who are you getting it from? So thank God I did an undercover case in New York, and we hadn't arrested the defendant. He was in, he was in the Genovese family. So I says, oh, I get it from so-and-so. He says, he gets it from us. He says, from now on, you get it from us. So that's how it started. And... Um, what had happened was we set up a, a thing where I was somebody in Philadelphia. I had a penthouse apartment. Uh, I, I had uh, a beautiful car and all that. And, and, and I set up an import-export company because we knew that they were bringing in all this heroin and we wanted to be part of it, you know, where we would go over to Europe and, and have them consign it to us. So we set up an import-export company in Pennsylvania with a subsidiary in Frankfurt, Germany. Okay, so uh, what had happened, I had the penthouse apartment. And what I would do is 
I would go to the apartment, go upstairs to the 18th floor. And at the time, that was the highest floor you could have in 1983 because you couldn't have a building higher than the William Penn statue on City Hall. So I had this penthouse apartment uh, on Locust Street. So I would go in, go upstairs to the apartment, and in those days, they just came out with call forwarding. Nobody knew about it, really. You know, it was in its infancy. So I would change my Philadelphia number to a red phone that I had in my house in Medford, New Jersey, which was 18 miles away from the apartment. I would go back down into the garage, get into a different car, and drive out to New Jersey. So a few days after we had the conversation about me doing white powder, I get a phone call on the red phone, and it's Alberto Ficalora. And he's saying, we're downstairs, meaning downstairs at the penthouse. Now, I'm 18 miles away. So right away, I have to say, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm with my gubare, which means I'm with my girlfriend. And and they all understand that. I says, I'm going to be like another half hour. Why don't you go to La Buca restaurant, which was uh, a restaurant in Philly, and I'll meet you there. And they said, fine. So now I have to barrel ass from 18 miles away uh, to come into Philadelphia. I could only find one surveillance agent, you know, that was available to sit outside La Buca when I went in. So when I went into the restaurant, there's Alberto Ficalora, uh, Paolo Laporta, and Frank Casadegato, another Sicilian zip. And they said, oh, let's go for a ride. I says, I'll be goddamn. So we go, we jump into their car. I'm sitting in the back seat with uh, with uh, 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 Frank Affatigato, and we take off. And I, I'm noticing on the side that the agent follows us for about two blocks and we lose him. So now I'm with these three zips, and we start talking about heroin. They said, well, we only do weight. And so... Uh, uh, Frank Afadagato really had a, a nasty attitude. I says, look, I don't know you from anywhere, you know. I says, I, I want a sample first. And he says, we don't do samples. I says, hey, okay, screw you. Uh, I, I can get my stuff elsewhere. And, and so Alberto wanted the deal to go down. So Alberto says, why don't we do like 10 ounces for $85,000? I don't know where he came up with 10 ounces. So I says, okay, that sounds good to me. And, and, and that's what we decided on. So now I have to go and get the money, you know, the 85000 Thank God Rudy Giuliani was the assistant attorney general under Ed Meek. And Rudy knew me from the early days in the late 60s when he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And I used to bring cases to him, you know. So they had a meeting in, in Washington, and, and, and Rudy was very excited about this. Here, this was going to be the first attempt to get a civilian heroin purchase in the United States and to get all these people. And, and so uh, the meeting went real well. If you want me to buy heroin, I need that amount. I need to set up this. 
I need a passport. I need complete cover in my other name. And at the time, I was using the name Frankie Pagano or Frankie Pagano. And uh, and so uh, all that was taken care of. And so the first buy was for $85,000 for 10 ounces. And when the Sicilians walked away from that restaurant with that $85,000, I was in. You know, there, there was no problem. And, and from there on, I bought uh, almost $900,000 worth of heroin. And we arrested all sorts of people in Philadelphia and New York. And, and, uh, but they, I, I mean, the pizza case goes on and on where we identified uh, all, their, uh, all their customers. This particular, under uh, 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 Chesapeake Bonaventure, they were doing a million dollars a day worth of heroin. Now, just think of $350 million a year, bigger than a Fortune 500 company. Well, just you saying you were buying 900, you bought $900,000 worth of heroin at that time period in 1982, 83. I mean, that'd be like you know, buying $9 million worth of heroin right now, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I was in. I mean, uh, and uh, as each day went on, uh, you know, I existed and, and I met with them and, and they came up and told us stories about you know, this and that and hits that they had to do in Sicily. And and then I interested them in possibly using my import-export company to bring heroin in through Frankfurt, Germany. And they were very interested in that. And uh, I also offered to launder their money, but they said, no, we got that down. They, they're bringing in a million dollars a day. And they had one guy in Brooklyn, his name was Rosario Dispenza, and he had an apartment in Brooklyn, and all the money went to him, you know, the 20s, the 5s, the 10s. And he would take a million dollars at a time and bring it to a guy he knew in Merrill Lynch. And the guy knew that every million dollars that this Rosario brought in, 100000 was for the guy on Merrill Lynch to launder the $900,000, okay? Back then, you didn't have the laws where, you know, uh, every $10,000 transaction, you know, you had to report. So he would give him the million dollars. The guy would invest it in anything. It could be uh, uh, Mrs. Fletcher's storm door company. It didn't matter. He would invest that 900000 in that. After so many days or a month, he would sell the stock. If it ain't money, fine. If it didn't, no problem. So now you had $900,000 of clean money, which you sent either back to Sicily or uh, to an offshore bank in the Caribbean. And this is, this is what they were doing. But the case went on and on, and there were so many things so many offshoots. Frank was able to do in less than two years between 82 and 84 what the federal government had been trying to do for the previous decade unsuccessfully. And this is what really, I mean, uh, Frank Panessa had a epic 
resume and reputation before the pizza connection. But this case that he made, um, I, I can't overemphasize it's, it's his historic importance. Um, and as he's talking about all the offshoots and all of the, so this was, you know, the pizza connection started in, in 73, 74. It wasn't taken down until about 84. Frank got on the case in like 82. So like I said, he did two years of work to, to bust that thing wide open that his predecessors had not been able to do. But within that last couple years of the pizza connection, you first had before uh, Frank Panessa and his unit were, were on the scene, you had the assassination of uh, Carmine Galante in 1979, perpetrated by his number one lieutenant, Cesare Bonaventri. And Cesare's cousin, Baldo Amato. Right, they were like a tandem. And uh, they were yeah. uh, Carmine Galante's bodyguards. On the, well, They were his bodyguards every day. But the day that Carmine Galante was killed in the summer of 79, they were supposed to be watching his back. But in reality, they were helping the, the hit team come and finish him off. And then uh, when they did ballistics at the, at the crime scene, it turned out that, that the final shots into Carmine Galante's body were actually fired by Cesare Bonaventure and Baldo Amato. Um, they became, or Cesare became a, a, a capo for doing that. He became the youngest capo in New York City. I believe he was only 24 or 25. Then yeah. Yeah. he's yeah. kind of running the show. He's the head of the snake at that point um, when, when Frank Panessa is working this case. But then right as the case is about to come down, I believe in the month or two before the case is going to come down, Cesare Bonaventri is murdered. Yeah. So, and then the case when it comes down, like you said, it didn't just affect New York City. Um, there were defendants from Pennsylvania. There were defendants from New Jersey. There were defendants from Illinois. And there were defendants here in Detroit, in, in, or I should say in Michigan. Exactly. Yeah, we identified distributors in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And defendants from uh, Italy as well were part of it. Oh, yes, definitely. Let me ask you, Frank, one of the things what Scott talked about, uh, tradecraft, I think it's interesting. So you were speaking Italian with these guys the whole time, right? No. See, this is what we did. They spoke Sicilian all the time, Okay which they had their own dialect, and, and it was very difficult to understand. So I let on that I didn't understand anything, and my gumare was fluent in Sicilian, but she let on she didn't even speak Italian. You know, so this way we could pick up snippets of uh, things that they were saying. Now, we, we spoke in English uh, uh, because I wanted them to feel comfortable when they had something to say to each other, they'd say it in their Sicilian dialect, you know, and uh, and and we were able to get, you know, a glean some information from that. But uh, uh, I, an, another thing that happened was if you look at the heroin distribution in the five families of New York, uh, one of the biggest families distributing were the Gambinos. And during my undercover work in Philadelphia, I was able to get into the Cherry Hill Gambinos, who were cousins of Carlo Gambino. And uh, and uh, we had some interesting conversations and uh, 
and and the the government just wouldn't go for what I wanted to do. I was introduced to to the Cherry Hill Gambinos by Alberto Ficalora. And the whole premise was that they had burnt down their their nightclub called Valentino's in Cherry Hill. And uh, Alberto said that I might be interested, me, Frankie Pizza, might be interested in buying it from them. And so I approached, you know, the powers to be in, in Washington. And I says, look, this is a perfect opportunity for me to take over Valentino's in Cherry Hill. We'll wire it, video it, and this way, all the Cherry Hill Gambinos and all, all the zips from Philadelphia will hang out there and we'll be recording all this stuff. Well, the empty suits in, in Washington said, oh, no, innocent people will be involved in this and that. So it never went through. So what had happened was they opened up a private club in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, called Club Enchante. And, and that's where we hung out. The Sicilians and the Italian uh, people from Philadelphia and New Jersey. See, I wanted this to be in Valentino's. And we would have had a captive audience. We would have had private rooms for their meetings and all that. But the government wouldn't go for it. So we ended up going to uh, uh, Club Enchante. And a lot of things happened there. And, and that's another story. Let me ask you, isn't that where they would uh, hold court with, like, Angelo Bruno, the Cherry Hill Gambinos? Was was that at that club? Yeah. Yes. Uh, originally before Burn. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And so just to show you, like, the stature of the Cherry Hill Gambinos, that sometimes, like, Angelo Bruno, a guy, like, he, he might not even hardly associate with soldiers <laughs> or underlings at all. But here he is. He gets, uh, you know, the Cherry Hill Gambinos get FaceTime with him. And Paul Cast guys oh, like yeah. Paul Castellano too. It shows you like the stature of the Cherry Hill Gambinos, like how well respected oh, they yeah. were in the underworld. Well, under John Gambino, yeah, he he was a heavy. Yeah, let, let, can we talk about that? Like, let's identify. So the Cherry Hill Gambinos. This is a Sicilian faction of the Gambino crime family. As you pointed out, they're actually related to Carlo Gambino. They're related to Paul Castellano, who was Carlo Gambino's brother-in-law. Was it his brother-in-law? Yes. yes. And so, yes, he was. They're related to the heavyweights in, in New York. They set up shop in South Jersey, which is where Cherry Hill is, right outside of Philadelphia, kind of in between Atlantic City and like, Philadelphia. Right outside Philadelphia. I mean, Cherry right. Hill might as well be in Philadelphia. No, that's right. It's only a few miles. Yeah. A yeah. few miles it's from, right across the bridge. So they're working quite often with Philadelphia guys because it's right. It's right there. Not just New York guys, but Philadelphia guys. And. um so John Gambino is the, would you say he was a, he was the captain, I think, of the Sicilian fact. He was a uh, capital regime. Eventually became an administrator in the Gambino yeah. crime family. Eventually yeah. became one of the top two or three guys in the whole family. Yeah. And so who were, who yeah. were some of the other guys in his crew? His brothers, Rosario and Joe? Rosario, yeah. And did you have any interactions with them? Yeah, well, see, that's what it was. When Alberto introduced me to them, to the brothers... And and as I say, it was a perfect opportunity to uh, get in with them, you know, uh, through Valentino's. But that didn't happen. So the only other contact I had with them is when 
I would be at Club Enchante. And now you have to remember that I wasn't part of the Bruno family, so I really couldn't, like, hang out with the guys from the Bruno family. So I stayed with all the Sicilians. Yeah, that's right. Good point. Yeah. You know? So there was never a question. They never questioned, well, who's who's that big gawky guy, you know? Because they thought I was one of the Sicilians. Yeah, that's a good point. Tell the story about the Selena brothers, and that dove, that dovetails with the yeah. Cherry Hill Gambinos, the Bruno crime family, and what Frank Panessa was trying to do. So the Selena brothers were these two kind of loose cannon Sicilians, um, and Frank, you were at a club where they showed up, and you were with... Yeah, uh, Club Enchante. Club okay. And Alberto Ficolora said to me, he says, you see those two over there pointing to the Selena brothers? He says, they show no respect. You know, they're Cafones, you know, they're, they're, they're lowlifes. And uh, something has to be done about it. Well, a month later, one was murdered. And a month after that, the other one was murdered. I think it was like a week. I think the brothers were, were murdered like a week apart. And what yeah. what, what ties that into modern-day uh, LCN activity is that a little-known fact that I was uh, able to report uh, maybe a year or two ago was that the former acting boss of the Bruno crime family, the current alleged consigliere, uh, Uncle Joe Legambi, was allegedly involved in the Selena brothers' murders as a way to make his bones so he could get made into the, uh, the Bruno, Scarfo, uh, Bruno Scarfo crime family. He was charged. Yeah. I believe he was arrested and indicted and then a couple months after the charges were dropped, and he never had to account uh, for his alleged role in that. But there were conversations that were being held beh- uh, by the, and I know that the FBI has some surveillance uh, recordings or footage of meetings that were, t- this, this took place in 1983, I believe. And there were meetings that were being uh, between the Cherry Hill Gambinos and Chucky and Yogi Merlino, who were yeah. uh, the, the boss of the Philadelphia Mafia today, is Joey Merlino. His dad and uncle um, were politicking with the Cherry Hill Gambinos in relation to this Selena Brothers murder. We're not exactly sure who did it. We know why it was done, but there are, according to the theory that I was given and that led to Legambi being um, indicted for it, even though he never had to stand trial, was that the Scarfo Brunos were taking care of the Selena brothers as a favor to the Cherry Hill Gambino. Yeah. See, these were all missed opportunities that I had. If I had control of Valentino's, there wouldn't be a club on Chante. There would be all these geese hanging out at Valentino's. And we would have come up with, you know, who's... Who's who? Who's doing what? But again, well, I, I was lucky to be in Club Enchante when a Nicolora said to me, you know, about them showing no respect and all that. And sure as hell, they were knocked off that following. And the Gambi had to wait another three years. He didn't get his butt until '86. Some of that had to do with yeah. Chucky Merlino getting demoted. He was Chucky Merlino's guy, and Nicky Scarfo wanted to see how loyal he was to Chucky, so he held off, I think, a year or two uh, on his making. But 
So he made his bones in 83. Then he actually made his bones again if you... <laughs> he was then convicted of a murder from 85, Frankie Flowers uh, in South Philly. That got tossed out of court in the 90s, and that's how uh, Joe Legambi got free. But it looks like Joe Legambi made his bones on two separate occasions, one thinking he was going to get made in 83 and wasn't, and then one in 85 and then got uh, made in 86. Sorry, yeah. I digress a little bit, but... For, for nerds like me, no, part of those it, yeah. little uh, nooks and crannies uh, interest me. No, I, I agree. And and so were you, Frank, did you interact with like Manny Gambino or uh, Erasmo Gambino, any of the other ones, Antonio? Yeah, with both of them. Wow. Yeah. Because there were quite a few, as, as quite I a say, few Gambinos. I personally met them. I, wow. I personally met them with Alberto Ficalora, uh for the purpose of being taking over Valentino's from them. And so, I, I mean, it, it was a perfect in. If I would have gone with that, they would have been like my goombas, you know? Yeah. They'd be at the club every day. And what was your impression of guys like Rosario Gambino, John Gambino? Just what was your impression of, like, how they carried themselves and just, like, what, what would you say about those guys? You know, I hate to say it, but uh, they were a bit coarse, you know? Why do you hate to say it? Around the edges. <laughs> speak the tr- speak the truth, Frank. There wasn't too much finesse to them. You know, I used to refer to these guys like the D's, Dems, and Doe's guys. You know, <laughs> for me, I, I found that I've met a lot of criminals, a lot of famous criminals in the last 10, 15 years, and they run the gamut. Some you sit down with, and you're just like, "Oh, this guy is incredibly charming, incredibly intelligent. I can see why he was able to do what he what he did." And then you sit down with other guys that have reached a, a pretty high uh, uh, mountaintop, and you're like, how the heck did this guy get there? Yeah. Well, see, I found with the Laporters, the Laporters were sharp. Uh, uh, Paolo and, and Giovanni Laporter were two sharp Sicilians, and they were in the business since the 80s. They were, they were involved in smuggling the zips from Canada into the United States. That was their one job, and they were doing hits back in the 80s. Uh, but these were two sharp individuals, and they set up some fantastic heroin networks, like Giovanni Laporta uh, set up uh, 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 a network in Puerto Rico, and he had five major uh, distributors in Puerto Rico. Uh, and and I traveled with him to Europe. Uh and what we were going to do was I introduced them to my people in Frankfurt, Germany, and my import-export company. And what we were going to do, we were going to take liquid morphine that came from Yugoslavia. It was going to be sent to their bottling company in Bagaria, Sicily. And then we were going to send it through my company to the Dominican Republic where it would the morphine base would be made into heroin, so that's that's we we went to Germany and uh, and 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 it was set up beautifully. I mean, I, I worked with the BKA over there, which was the German state police, and they were so professional. You, I never met these people, and me and Giovanni get off the plane in Frankfurt, Giovanni Laporta, and I'm met by this big burly German and he hugs me and oh Frank so good to see you and we go out and there's this big Mercedes and he says to Giovanni you see what Frank got me and we drive to buy 
import-export company, which I've never seen before. And over the door is Prima Import-Export, okay? So we go in, and there's this, like, 20, 21-year-old beautiful blonde secretary. Oh, Frank, so good to see you. I made the cookies that you like. <laughs> you know, it was so professional. And and Giovanni's looking at all this, so he was sold on it. Uh that uh, we were gonna we were gonna attempt this, and and uh, but things happened. They had to kill a judge in Sicily, a judge Chinizzi, and uh, and the Italian police really came down on them. So we really couldn't do any movement uh, of heroin at that time. They did kill that judge, right? They didn't just plan it. Was it. Two they, it was two judges. Yeah, more than that. Yeah, I mean. Oh, oh, they killed a yeah. number of them. Right. I'm just saying at at that particular time right. when I was over there, yeah. they had killed Judge Chinitzi. Uh Frank, do you remember, you know. as I'm actually, uh, I'm going to correct myself from something I said earlier. I think that the Bonaventure murder happened a couple months after Pizza Connection. It was either right before oh, Pizza Connection. It was either right before Pizza Connection or right after Pizza Connection. It was '84. After the Pizza. Okay, connection. so it was short. It was after. very, very shortly after, within a month or two. Yes. Do you remember getting word that Bonaventure had been either disappeared or had had been murdered? No, I, I did get a lot of displeasure from the Laporters and Alberto Ficolora about the way Bonaventure was handling the business, because the original heroin I bought. Uh, from them was like, you know, in the 90% pure, which is pure heroin, you know, and if with that, let's say that $85,000 that I paid for that heroin, I could make almost a million dollars by cutting it, you know, and selling it at street level. So anyway, a few times I got packages where the percentage was like 30%. So I would complain to Alberto and to Laporta. I says, what the hell are you giving me? This is garbage. He says, we have to take what we get from Cesare. In other words, he was a greedy bastard, just like uh, Galante. Galante was doing the same thing. He was greedy. And so they were getting very displeased with, with what Cesare was doing and the way he was handling things. You know, he he was just like... He became another Galante where he thought, you know, he was boss of bosses, king and all that, and he could do whatever he wanted. How do you think Baldo Amato, like, because that was his his relative and they were really close. Um, how does a guy like that process that? Like, he's he's just got to fall in line and, and be a good soldier and just that's what the, bo- the boss wanted him. Bonaventure out of the way, and now Baldo, like, he's got to just do his part. He's not going to seek revenge or anything, right? Well, no, Baldo gave himself up as soon as, uh, as soon as they discovered Cesare in three fifty-five gallon drums. Yeah, uh, uh, Baldo gave himself up. Oh, to the uh, to the authorities. Yeah. Oh, for the uh, okay for the because he knew yeah. he knew that they were going to hit him too. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, because it would it seems like he'd want to take them both out. So I was just curious what his role was after that. Yeah. Okay. So he turns himself in. That makes sense. Oh yeah, and then but then he makes it right eventually because he does his time and then he he gets back into the Bonanno crime family. Yes, 
Okay. So it's just fa- it's fascinating, the politics. Uh, the politics of it all was they wanted to get rid of Cesare because Cesare became another uh, uh, Lilo, Galante. Yeah. And uh, uh, they were displeased with Lilo. They got rid of him. And now here comes Cesare, and he's pulling the same crap, you know. Yeah, and it ends up the same way. Matter of fact, you know, one of the packages I got was like 33% heroin. And at that time, they had arrested a father and son in New York. And, and in the New York uh, news, it said father and son uh, arrested uh, with pure heroin. So I said to Alberto, I says, Alberto, how come he's getting pure heroin in New York and I'm getting 30% crap? He says he's getting the same thing we we were supplying him, and he's getting the same thing that you got. So I says, this is bull. I says, I can't make any money with this crap. So about a week later, Alberto hands me a paper bag. And in the paper bag is $16,000. And he says, I feel sorry. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed at the last package that I gave you. So here's something to make up for the difference. And he actually gave me 16,000 cash. Wow. <laughs> so he wanted to keep, he wanted to keep this lucrative partnership going. He didn't want you sour. I know. <laughs> That's for sure. Were you able to follow up the chain? Like where Fica Laura and uh, where they were getting it from in, in Sicily? Like what, what, um, what families in Sicilia? Well, well, it was, it was controlled by, by the, by John Gambino, he was the, yeah. the main guy that went over to Sicily, and and you had you had all the major Sicilians over there like Rihanna, yeah, and these people were controlling all, and of course Bartolomente, yeah, you know we can't forget Bartolomente. He was he was like the, their uh, how should I say it their main distributor of the Sicilian heroin in the United States, yeah, and so. Uh, uh Mente was the guy, their man in the United States or their man. He was actually in, in South America, but he was controlling all these pizza shops, uh, in the United States. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, what happens is that again, the, the, the political infighting where Totorino from Corleone wants to take over the, you know, the, the heroin rackets and really take over all of Sicily. So he starts killing yeah. his rivals, like guys in the Battlemente family and uh, Inzerillo, you know. Yeah, and, and the, he killed the Inzerillos. Uh, and I remember Paolo Laporta went over to Sicily to handle the burial of Inzerillo because they were close. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. He was over there. Were you in South Jersey when some of the Inzerillos turned up dead there? Because th- some of their, I think... I think you know, some cousins and, and maybe an uncle turned up dead in South Jersey. What, maybe around 80, 81, something like that, 82? No, I wasn't there. I got there in uh, 82. Okay, so that maybe those those bodies had already fallen. Because I, th- I think the, the murder yeah. of the Solina brothers was connected to the to the war that was going on in Palermo. Oh, it, it could well be. You know, I, I just had, you know, the conversations with Alberto as far as them being, you know, out of hand and not uh, men of honor. Now, another guy that entered into all this was Tommaso Buscetta. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, he, he was involved in the distribution with Bartolomente. And that's a, a whole new 
that's a whole. That's another story at, uh, at a future date. <laughs> yeah, we can well, talk gonna, about him. Yeah, we're gonna have you back. Yeah, because he was one of the first big uh, pentito in uh, Sicilia. You know, uh, a guy who becomes an informant. Um, and I know that you were uh, you were the uh, American agent who was handling his case when he was flying to the United States to testify here. By that time, they sent me to Italy. Okay, in '88, I was transferred to Rome, and. Uh, I was, how would you say, if you want to explain to your audience, I was the bag man for the Italians to Vichetta because by that time he was in the witness protection program uh, being guarded by DEA. And so whenever the Italians wanted to give him money, they would give it to me and I'd fly to the United States and, and, and make arrangements with the DEA agent that was handling Vichetta and we would meet somewhere, and uh, I would, you know, I would give him the money from the Italians, and and we had a lot of interesting conversations. Uh, at that time, Giuseppe wasn't telling the true story or the the whole story about how high the corruption went in the Italian government. Eventually, he came out, and you found that it was all the way up to the president of Italy, that was in the pocket of the mafia. Right. Yeah, that was but a big as scandal. As I say, that's another, that's another, uh, another story. Yeah, that's another story, and we'll, and we appreciate your time, Frank. We'll we'll definitely have you back because we we need to talk about Tommaso Buscetta. There's still more questions I have for you about Philadelphia and Jersey, and as Scott uh, referenced earlier, uh, you also uh, were investigating uh, Detroit uh, mafiosi, <laughs> so we didn't even get to that yet. So. Um, we really appreciate your time, Frank. We have to uh, wrap up here, but um, I hope you'll come back and share these, uh, share some of your experiences. With oh us. yeah, I mean, I I even was out in Detroit uh, working on the Jack alone. That's another story. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, thanks for everyone <laughs> listening to the Original Gangsters podcast, and we thank Special Agent Frank Panessa. Please follow us on social media: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Please subscribe and spread the word. And uh, we'll bring more content for you next week. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato, and for my co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein, we'll see you next time. Out.